talking a full release with Samantha B. Hopefully, you'll experience one by the end of this. It's spooky season, dear listeners, and as a proud practitioner of witchery, this is such a busy time of year for me. Of course, there are plenty of real-world terrors to be genuinely frightened of right now. I mean, like, try not to shudder at the word variant. But here's the thing. We have to give ourselves a moment to take a breather, and that's what this podcast is about. We're going to try for an hour or so to calm your nerves and massage your mind. I'm joined, as always, by my producers, Via Baron reinstein and Adam Howard. Okay, podcast gals, we have Congressman Adam Schiff on the show today. Now, as you both know, Adam Schiff famously chaired impeachment hearings for Donald Trump. If you could impeach and remove a single member of the House and Senate right now, who would it be and why would it be that person? I feel like there are like 430 really good options, so I would accept almost any (laughs) answer. I mean, it's such a hard question because the obvious answer is like Mitch McConnell because he gets so much done. Yeah. But I feel like, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you just go for someone super random just to show your power. I feel like, try (laughs) me. Look what Just I can like do. A flex. Like someone nobody's Just, ever heard of. Oh my God. Well, there are a lot of people that nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> I can't name any of them. <laughs> Sometimes one pops up on my on my TV or whatever, and I'm like, who the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, so I'm gonna get rid and of like, him wait. and then everyone else will be scared. Nice. Okay. Well this is this is this is a power move. What about you? <laughs> what about you? Yeah, I mean obviously the the reasonable practical answer is McConnell, but I would say lately. There's no member of Congress that I find more revolting than Kirsten Cinema, because mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she holds so much in the palm of her hands and right. seems to be very in a very like pithy sort of way. Uh, like, I mean, obviously, there was already like the thing she did over the minimum wage, which was pretty unforgivable. But right. just to realize that she alone could be responsible for trillions and trillions of dollars not getting spent on climate change, just that alone. <sighs> Is unforgivable. She alone. To me. Yeah, and I hate her style. Oh, that too. God. She's a terrible dresser. That's neither here nor there. <laughs> hit her where it hurts. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, she's really problematic to me right now. She is a problem. But don't you think? Like, I feel like the biggest toilet clog is Mitch McConnell. Like he's just <laughs> just a forever clog. Toilet yeah. clog. I'm proud of it. Pernicious. Be like, yeah, I clogged that toilet. Yeah, look, I clog all the toilets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, it's always fun when we have like <laughs> like a very important a very important person on, on the show. We always end with somehow talking about toilets. Oh, that's very <laughs> true. And coming up next, <laughs> represent <laughs> Supreme like Court Justice. So happy to follow all of this toilet talk. Well, I am so excited. We're going to take a quick break, but we have Representative Adam Schiff coming up, and he's so excited now. (laughs) But you are not going to want to miss this. Joining me today is Representative Adam Schiff. Congressman Schiff is an 11-term member of the House, where he represents the 28th District in California, and he currently serves as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. He was one of the lead investigators and later managers of the first Donald Trump impeachment. Remember when... He tried to steal the 2020 election the first time (laughs) for his patriotic efforts. Representative Schiff has become a popular punching bag for the right and a regular target of the absolute dingus that was our 45th president, whose legacy he tackles in his new book, Midnight in Washington. Lucky for him, I'm a very stable genius. Welcome to the show, Representative Adam Schiff. 
Hi, how are you? Good, good. How are you doing? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for saying yes to being on my podcast. You're such a good friend to the show. Are you kidding? I'm, I'm, I am so excited to be with you. I'm such a fan. This is, uh, I have to, you know, to restrain myself from going all fanboy on you. Oh, the feeling is very mutual. <laughs> the feeling is very, very mutual. Um, you're a busy human being. You're a yes. busy, busy person. You're on your book tour now, you know, among all of your responsibilities, including trying to restore democracy, save democracy, all of that. You're also promoting your book, which is, I assume, a spine chilling thriller called (laughs) Midnight in Washington. (laughs) So anyway, thank you for being here. I'm going to dive right in. Is that okay with you? I'm going right. I'm I'm going right for the gusto. Have you seen or spoken to Mike Pence since January 6th? Uh, I have not. I have not. Uh, have but not. No, no, no. Um, but of course, uh, I did see him try to downplay and diminish the significance of January 6th. And yeah. someone apparently needs to remind him they were trying to hang him that day. Um, but it, it's the ultimate showing of obsequiousness uh, to the former president that uh, Mike Pence feels right. the need to uh, diminish an attack that uh, could have claimed his life. So crazy. How safe do you feel going to work? every day in Congress, especially since the former president put such a huge target on your back? Well, honestly, I I feel safer at the Capitol because there is so much security there now. Yeah. Uh, It's outside outside the Capitol that you feel more exposed. Um, And what I've discovered the last uh, five years is I'm kind of a human focus group now. Okay. Uh, When I'm out and about, people tell me exactly what they feel. It's either love and a lot of love or, or real hate. Yeah. Uh, and people get right at my face and start screaming at me. My father, who's 93, uh-huh. lives in Boca Raton, where it's like Seinfeld every week. Right. Uh, and uh, <laughs> he was at the club having dinner the other night, and a woman at the next table stood up, came over to his table, and just started screaming at him. What? My 93-year-old father, who's not usually at a loss for words, but he was kind of at a loss for words. Right. What is that? How do you... Did you feel it brewing? Do you feel like... <laughs> Sometimes, you know, and I feel it on such a smaller level, but sometimes I go to a place and they'll, you know, they play the national anthem. And then I feel like certain people in the crowd look at me to see if I have my hand over my heart, like just to make sure I'm doing it right, which of course I am. But when do you know that somebody's going to come? Do you, do you anticipate these moments? Uh, you can definitely tell um, when mm-hmm. you start to get sidelong glances, uh, when somebody, sure. uh, you know, comes marching up to you with an angry face. Right. Um, oh, God. And, uh, oh, the march. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, over the last several years, I've gotten any number of calls from the Capitol Police about different threats in my life and right. people being arrested for threatening to kill me and sending me mug shots in case they show up right. uh, somewhere they're not supposed to be. Uh, so the sad thing is... It's not that uncommon. Uh, it's right. not just me by any means. Uh, it's true of a great many uh, elect officials, and mm-hmm. it's a terrible sign of the times. It but is. I, I do think it's part of the broader picture. Uh, you have the president uh, out there pushing this big lie about elections that they're rigged, and uh, and you know what's the alternative if you think elections can't be used anymore to decide who should govern, right. and people start resorting to uh, violence, right? You must feel just the the amount of anger that it's out there that is so palpable and you're just feeling it in your daily life. When did you 
Um, when did you start to, because I'm sure that you walked this earth, not feeling that for, for much of your career. When did you really start to feel that? When did that, when did you really start to notice it? I guess. Uh, I guess it was a bit like the, the slowly boiling frog. I didn't really notice that much that things were really intensifying in terms of the, the level of hate mm-hmm. until one night I was home uh, and uh, Eve, my wife uh, was very upset and I thought it was, you know, something in particular that had prompted it. And we had someone at one point try to break into our house in the middle of the night and, uh, but no, um, you know, as I held her in the kitchen, uh, she said, I just can't stand how so many people hate you. They just hate you. Right. Um, and it was the realization that millions of people just hated her husband. Um, and that was really new to us, um, that kind of vehement reaction from a lot of people. But it, it certainly showed me more of the presidential bully pulpit, um, Fox primetime, conservative radio. Right. They can really make a villain out of you. Right, right. And it is hard for, I mean, my, it's hard for my spouse to grapple with too. Like he definitely feels it, but it's so funny because you can live with it yourself for a while, but it's when people on the outside go, are you, this, this is not normal. <laughs> it's not supposed to be like this, right? Like this is a lot. That's exactly right. And she kept getting texts. Um, you know, it was nice to, you know, get that support from family and friends. But on the other hand, it was like, why do they think I need the, the support? And, um, right. uh, you know, I, I don't think that's uh, what we anticipated when I chose to go into public service, but mm-hmm. it now comes very much with the territory. Although I will say that, you know, we don't talk nearly enough about how your wife's name is Eve and you are Adam and Eve. And, you know, I like that. I just want to say it gives me a kind of symmetry and I just really appreciate that. I think you both chose well. Well, I think she only went out with me as a curiosity. Oh. Um, <laughs> so it did, it did, uh, it did have that wonderful uh, purpose. Right. Right. I'm sure her whole life she was like, well, I know one thing and that's, I'm not going to marry someone named Adam. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> I remember when we were, when we were uh, I think, newly engaged, we were looking to buy a car and went to a mm-hmm. used car lot. And the really you know, proverbial car salesman came up to us and put out his hand with great excitement and exuberance. Hi, my name's Phil. And I said, my name's Adam. And he looked at Eve and she said, my name's Eve. And he looked at us oh. and said, I don't have time for this. And he walked I away. Can't do don't do this to me, please. Exactly. I'm a busy person. When you're serious about buying this. a car, you can give me your real name. <laughs> Okay. There's been, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about members of Congress playing an active role in the planning of the tragic events of January 6th. And I know you can't talk about an active investigation, but can you speak to what the consequences could be if you do have colleagues who actively aided and abetted the insurrectionists? Well, our our role is to expose uh, what went into January 6th, uh, who helped organize it, what expectation of violence they had, uh, how it was funded, what the role of the president and people around him were. And also, if there were members of Congress that were part of this, uh, that needs to be exposed. Right Now, in the Congress itself, we don't have the power to go beyond exposure. Okay. Um, I, I suppose we do have the power of uh, ethics. We could bring up uh, ethics uh, charges against members. Um, we even have the 
power to expel members. But anything beyond that really would require the Justice Department. Uh, and okay. uh, they would need to decide that, uh, I think, in, in order to look at something criminal, that there was a criminal conspiracy. Right. That's a very high bar. But our job is really to expose the facts and okay. allow the public to see how this happened and, and most importantly, what we need to do to prevent it happening again. Okay. So it's okay, though, for me to sit around and fantasize about the people that you're going to eject and the the means by which you're going to eject them, like a rocket ship that like launches them into outer space or something like that. Far be it from me to tell you what you should fantasize about. A girl can dream. <laughs> just one of those chairs that you press the eject button and it just like it's like spring loaded. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just a cartoon spring loaded chair. Okay. In your new book, Midnight in Washington, you talk about the loss of friendships during the Trump administration. Can you talk about why those bipartisan relationships were able to survive other Republican administrations, but not this one? Were the death threats a part of that? Uh, well, you know, certainly January 6th was a big part of that. I, I remember I was on the House floor uh, through all of that. And, and, and one of the things that was so striking to me is we had people bashing in the windows and the police telling us we needed to get out. Yeah. Is that these people who were attacking the Capitol that day, they really believed the big lie about the election. Right. But the people that I worked with inside the chamber, um, these Republican members, these insurrectionists in suits and ties, they knew it was a big lie. Right. And they were more than willing to peddle it. And even after the insurrection, when we went back to the House floor, um, they were still trying to overturn the election. There was still blood on the floor, literally outside the chamber. And they were trying to overturn the results still. Mm -hmm. uh, how, do you, how do you look someone in the eye after that? Right. And so I think for many of us, that was a real, a real um, relationship altering moment, uh, to put it mildly. But even before that, I saw so many people who I had admired and respected because I believed that they believed what they were saying. Turns out they didn't believe anything they were saying or it wasn't it just wasn't that important compared to their hope to serve in a cabinet, uh, right. Trump's cabinet, or to advance to the Senate one day or right. some other aspiration. And that was a terrible realization because I had thought more highly of these colleagues. Right. It's the, just the height of cynicism, really. It's just like the absolute, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, it's unbelievable. And do you, ha do you have people, have you spoken to people who are like, I don't understand how you can I don't understand how you can be so two-faced. Like, have you, have you had these conversations with some of these members? And they're just like, hey, man, I love my job. I want to keep my job. Like, how do people justify that to you? Well, uh, I'll give you a prime example um, that I write about. It was my first real conversation with Kevin McCarthy. It was on an airplane. And we were flying back to Washington. I really didn't know him very well. This was several years ago. And it was before, actually, it was before the 2010 midterms. And we were just having an idle conversation about who was going to win. And I, I said the Democrats were going to win. And he said the Republicans were going to win. And it was a total nothing burger of a conversation. And we get to Washington. Uh, we go our separate ways. He goes off, apparently, and does a press briefing. And among the things he tells the press is that Republicans are going to win the midterms. Everybody knows it. He talked with Adam Schiff on the plane. And even Adam Schiff admitted Republicans were going to win the midterms. And 
you know, this was pre-social media, so I didn't hear about this till the next morning. And I was just beside myself. And I went up to him on the house floor and I said, Kevin, if we're having a private conversation on the plane, I would have thought it was a private conversation. But if it wasn't, you know, I said the exact opposite of what you told the press. Right. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, I know, Adam, but you know how it goes. And I said, no, Kevin, uh, I don't know how it goes. You just make shit up and that's how you operate because that's not right. how I operate. Am I allowed to say that on your show? Oh, you're allowed to say it much worse. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Encouraged. Thank actually. God. <laughs> yes. Um, but that is how he operates. And right. uh, I, I'm often asked uh, by my constituents, do these folks really believe what they say in public? Um, and about some of the most important things, like the validity of our last election, the answer is no, they don't believe it. Right. And uh, this is, I think, what has us in such trouble, um, that for four years, in particular, we had a president who claimed the truth wasn't truth and that he was entitled to his own alternate facts. And, right. um, and that unrelenting assault on the truth has just been so destructive of our democracy. Look, I already didn't like Kevin McCarthy, but everybody knows that airplane conversations are sacred. <laughs> you do not. That is a sacred trust between two people who are just trying to get from point A to point B. You do not violate that. And then to be so misrepresented is so, it's so crazy. That um, is crazy. You know, sometime I'll write a much shorter book on, uh, mm-hmm. on airplane conversations. Because one of my favorite, actually, during uh, the last few years was sitting next to a woman on the plane flying back to D.C. And this was before the midterms where we would end up taking over the house. And she said, uh, she introduced herself to me and she said, I am part of an 11,000 woman strong organization. We call ourselves Law Mamas. We are lawyers, we are mothers, and we are pissed. And we're going to do something about it. And I remember thinking to myself that, if 11,000 law mamas had found themselves organically online and were organizing uh, to be involved in the midterm, then something was really happening. Right. Uh, and as it turned out, something was. And, and thank God, because uh, those law mamas helped us take back the House. Right. Trump has been impeached twice. He's under multiple criminal investigations, and he's the first president to lose reelection in 25 years. Why? Why? Are Republican voters still so devoted to him? What is so enchanting about this human being? Please tell me what is this special sauce? I don't under I don't understand. I think part of what made him successful in 2016 um, was the realization that there were millions of people in the country who. Um, who have worked hard their whole lives. They were at the point of retirement. They had nothing set aside. Their kids were in debt. The future looked bleak. Uh, Their towns were dying. And here was this man threatening to break everything, claiming that he was this, you know, rich New York billionaire beholden to nobody uh, who could drain the swamp. Uh, And that had appeal. Uh, Now, of course, he turned that swamp into a total cesspool, uh, the most corrupt president we've had in decades. Um, And And yet, one of the things that he did as president, even though he never helped these folks uh, that he referred to as the forgotten people, he promptly forgot them. In fact, when his own people like Steve Bannon ripped them off, he pardoned Steve Bannon for robbing his own own supporters. But but part of what he did um, was he also injected poison every day. 
poisoning uh, people by saying that anyone uh, other than him looked down on them, laughed at them. Um, and if you can persuade people that the other side, the other party, condescends to them, um, they're never going to uh, support the other side. Right. And I think what what Trump's real message was, reading between the lines was, yeah, he's corrupt, but everybody's corrupt. And I'm your corrupt guy. Everybody lies, but I'm your liar. That was Trump's essential message. Right. I, I think for, for a lot of people who uh, were looking for something very different to kind of break the mold, they were willing to roll the dice. Now, having seen what he is, it's harder for me to explain why he retains any support whatsoever. Right. But it does show just how divided a country we are now. Even if you separate all of the crimes and all of that stuff out and just really um, assess how he handled the COVID outbreak. I mean, that alone would, (laughs) I I don't know why that wasn't, um, doesn't make a more compelling case that he should like be just vanish from public life because it was so, uh, so abysmally handled by him. I will never, as long as I live, forget the visual of him taking off his mask when he first emerged from his own sickness. I found it like I almost threw up. I thought I was going to throw up, actually. Well, I uh, I can certainly understand that. Um, I, you know, you can literally, I think, trace the deaths of tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands of people, to his incompetent handling of the pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. And what a, what a terrible tragedy. Um, terrible. In a sign of just how polarized we are as a country, uh, I read a story recently about someone going to the hospital or, or refusing to go to the hospital, refusing to be put on a ventilator because they didn't want to prove Trump's critics right. Right. Um, when you get to the point where you're willing to die rather than acknowledge that, that, that uh, someone has led you down the wrong path, right. um, you know what a hold he has on, on his base. Do you think he'll ever be forced to testify under oath about any of his many various crimes? Well, I, I don't know. Um, but I, I do believe that there are a couple of reasons why uh, he's going to run. I'm quite certain he's going to run again. Um, the first I don't is like that- to hear those words. I don't <laughs> like to hear that from you. Well, I, I thought that would be straight with you. Um, Jesus. But uh but the reason is uh, two reasons. One, I think he would just find it intolerable if Nikki Haley or Mike Pence or Ron DeSantis or any of these people were in the limelight and he wasn't. He would find that just excruciating. So I think mm-hmm. pathologically, uh, he's incapable of not running. But the other reason is um, there's great opportunity for grift. Right. It's a really good fundraising opportunity for him. And he gets to stay one step ahead of the jailer, getting to your point. Right. I think right, he right, feels right. that as long as he's either a candidate for president or president, they can't put him in jail, um, that uh, he's too big a criminal to fail. Right. Um, and and I think that's part of it, too. So there's a function. There's a very valuable, like a vital function in his life. I think so. Oh, I think so. Oh. And I, I uh, yeah. But to to make you feel a little bit better about that, okay. he's going to lose. He's going to lose. Uh, he got lose. a lot of votes in the last, he got a lot of votes the last time around. <laughs> he got a lot. That was astonishing to me, actually. I can, I never get over it. It's part of a, you know, decades long trend now um, where the country is increasingly, increasingly partisan. 
there's very little persuasion that goes on now between the parties, uh, very few undecideds. It is really now more a question of mobilizing your voters to turn out, uh, which is why it's so important for people to remain engaged. We need those La Mamas right. uh, and a lot more right. like them um, right. because we don't have the luxury of despair. Uh, as the speaker likes right. to say, we don't agonize, we organize. Okay. And and those who support Donald Trump, yes, they're numerous, but they're still very much a minority of Americans. Uh, it's just the majority doesn't always turn out to vote. Right. Um, and of course, they're trying to make it harder for people to vote, and particularly people of color, which means we've got to we've got to fight back hard and make sure that uh, our people can vote, that everyone can vote, um, and that we put this ugly uh, chapter behind us. Right. Okay. Well, you have introduced a comprehensive piece of legislation, the Protecting Our Democracy Act, that among other things will help strengthen Congress's uh, subpoena power. Were lawmakers aware of how weak their ability was to compel people to testify before Trump? Or was all of the norm shattering? Did that wake up lawmakers? Um, yes, all that norm shattering is, is really what woke us up. I don't think anyone expected right. up until now that a president of the United States could simply say, I'm stonewalling all subpoenas. Um, you know, Nixon was, uh, was, uh, impeached in the judiciary committee, uh, would have been impeached uh, for good if he hadn't resigned because he was obstructing justice because he was obstructing right. subpoenas, not complying with them. Uh, and his compliance was far better than anything uh, we saw during the Trump years. Yeah. So Trump really, you know, demonstrated that if he could intimidate one party, if he could so threaten the members of his own party that they wouldn't cross him, um, that uh, that you know this guardrail would come crashing down, uh, and it did. He he could play rope and dope in the courts endlessly as he as he did. Um, and remarkably, uh, during the impeachment trial, when he was impeached for obstructing Congress, even as we were in the Senate arguing the case and his lawyers were saying, no, Congress should have gone to court to enforce its subpoenas in court. At the same time, they were arguing Congress can't come to court. Uh, there's no standing for Congress to come to court right. and enforce subpoenas. They need to impeach the same <laughs> same administration. In fact, that's where the title of the book is drawn from, because at midnight during the Senate trial, uh, the, the Trump lawyers of the Justice Department hit send on a document that was due that day, contradicting their defense in the impeachment uh, to hide it from senators who were leaving for the weekend. And, you know, that kind of hypocrisy, duplicity um, uh, to me was illustrative of the time we were going through. But but I also think uh, and one of the things, the reasons why I like midnight um, the metaphor of midnight is it's the darkest moment of every day, everywhere in the world. Right. And what comes after holds the prospect of light. And we're at that dark moment. Uh, there is light ahead. And what we do now will determine how quickly we can we can um, get through this. Right. But uh, but there are better days ahead for us. So it is a spine tingling thriller. <laughs> it's just real life. It's just real life. It's a bit of thriller. It's a bit of farce. Yeah. Yeah. Got some comedy in there. Mm -hmm. my, my favorite part is uh, actually you don't you don't think you're going to find comedy during the Benghazi hearing, but uh, during the middle of the Benghazi hearings, while Hillary Clinton was testifying, we had a break for votes, and I went to the House floor and uh, I write about one of my friends, Derek Kilmer from Washington State, uh, says to me, "Did you ever notice how much 
um, Trey Gowdy looks like Draco Malfoy um, of Harry Potter. And I said, you know, I, I never thought about that. And he says, oh, yeah, there's a whole meme about it online. And he says, I will pay you $20 if when you go back into the hearing, you refer to him as the gentleman from Slytherin. Um, <laughs> which, uh, I have to say I was sorely tempted, but, uh, but, but I, oh, yeah. I, I, I couldn't bring myself to win that $20. Honestly, that would have been delicious, but it's okay. <laughs> it's good. It's good. It's probably better that you didn't, but it would have been great. I'm going to, I'm going to leave the comedy to yeah. you. Um, how concerned are you that Republicans are already floating the idea of impeaching Biden and Kamala Harris? Should they take back the house? Has like, did you just make it look too good? Is this your doing? <laughs> uh, well, this is this is classic uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, NGO, right? Which is, if you bring a legitimate investigation against the Republican president, if you bring an impeachment based on the fact that a president of our party incited an insurrection against the Capitol or withheld hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid from an ally at war with the Russians, so you can cheat in an election. Right. If you bring impeachments for those legitimate reasons, reasons that our founders would have applauded, we will impeach a Democratic president for completely illegitimate purposes. It's that that uh, uh, false relativism, uh, false equivalence. And so, but look, um, they will use any tactic device uh, they can, uh, regardless of what we do, uh, which is why they can never be allowed to govern. Right can never be allowed. Yeah. They are not good at governance. Speaking no, of governance. No, they don't even want to pay our bills. Um, right. No, they're, they're, as long as they're an autocratic cult, um, right. uh, an anti-truth, anti-democratic cult, they cannot be allowed to govern. How much are members of the House right now just cursing the names of Joe Manchin and, <laughs> and Kirsten Sinema? Uh, like, you know, I, um, look, it's it's frustrating when you have a 50-50 majority in the Senate, mm-hmm. which is a non-majority, um, and a, a, an almost 50-50 majority in the House. And you need every single member. Uh, and those members represent very different constituencies. Right. You know, my look, we're going to get to yes on the reconciliation bill and and yes on the infrastructure bill. So it's going to get done. Um, what we saw a week or two ago was act one, and I knew that it wouldn't get resolved in act one. Um, I'm hoping this is a two act play. Uh, so we get it done at the end of October. Right. And it's not a three act play, but, uh, what I find more difficult to understand is on voting rights, which is just existential to our democracy. If you're going to make an exception for the filibuster, and there've been plenty made by the Republicans, like not filibustering Supreme Court nominees when you want to jam them down the throat of the American people. Uh, if you're going to make exceptions to the filibuster, you ought to make an exception for voting rights, something foundational. Uh, because if the foundation isn't strong, then anything you build on it is going to crumble. And so the case for a carve out to be able to pass legislation to protect people uh, from being disenfranchised because they're black or they're brown, uh, to, to attack these laws where they're trying to strip uh, elections officials of their duties and give them to partisan individuals and boards so they can overturn the next election. If you want to protect our democracy, it seems like you shouldn't let the filibuster get in the way. That is a enormous frustration. And it's just got to, it's got to get done. It's got to get done. Right. How do we convince, I mean, 
like me, you're a, you're a fellow liberal coastal elite. How do you convince others that things like the child tax credit are actually good? It's such an easy case to make. Um, and right. In the uh, in the American Rescue Plan, as as you know, we we raised the child tax credit. We lifted half the kids in the country who were in poverty out of poverty. Yeah. And to me, that that says a couple things. It says that attacking poverty isn't rocket science. Right. It wasn't even the whole rescue plan, which did a lot of other things. It helped small businesses keep their doors open and help people with food on the table. It was just one provision that doubled the size of the child tax credit. That simple thing. So number one, it's not rocket science, but number two, how much poverty we have in the country is a choice we're making. It's a policy choice. I mean, if it's that easy to cut it in half, you could get rid of it altogether. And the only reason you don't get rid of it is you've made the policy choice. That's just not as high a priority as tax cut for really wealthy people, uh, among other things. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I'm really proud of, and, and I think if you're looking for any uh, single thing these days, uh, uh, although there are many. To point to is the difference between the two parties. One of them is when Democrats controlled House and Senate, they used about $2 trillion to help small businesses and help families and lift half the kids in the country out of poverty. Right. Right. When the Republicans controlled both houses, they gave a huge tax cut in the same amount to large corporations and very wealthy families. That tells you a lot about the values and priorities of the two parties. The other big difference these days among many is one party still supports democracy and the other doesn't. And right. that is a dangerous circumstance. Very dangerous. It just feels like we're at the precipice of great danger. And we've just kind of been there for a long time. But I really feel I really feel on edge. Do you feel this? Do you feel on edge? Like when you wake up in the morning, do you wake up and go, another bright, sunshiny day? Or do you wake up sometimes and go, ooh, so so much work to do today, endless amounts of work. Like, where do I even begin? Uh, there are many times during the last uh, five years where my predominant feeling when I get up in the morning is I just need to get through the day. Right. I just need to get through the day. I'm not going to look beyond today because I just need to get through the day. So, yeah, I do feel that 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 foreboding. Um, but, you know, I also... Um, recognize that when you're in the midst of a, a trauma, as we are as a nation, it's very difficult to see how it ends. Sometimes it's difficult to see when it ends, but it does come to an end. Right. This too shall pass. I really believe that. Uh, and part of what has inspired me in these hard times is I look at some of the heroic stories that have come out. Uh, you know, we talked about how power in the last four or five years revealed people not to believe anything they were saying. And there's a lot of that. But at the same time, I got to meet people like uh, Marie Ivanovich, um, who was this wonderful ambassador to Ukraine, who they were they were hounding and smearing to the point right. where she was told, you need to get on the next plane out of Ukraine. We can't protect you. Um, and she was told not to testify. Other witnesses were refusing to testify because the president was telling them not to. And here is this brave woman who steps into our committee room, facing down the president, facing down these hostile Republicans on our committee. And doing so with such courage and, and strength. Uh, and, uh, and when she entered the room, you could just feel the hush respect uh, that people had for her. Right. When she left, people rose to their feet with her. And, uh, you know, I, 
I look at those courageous people um, right. as showing the way out of this. And, and uh, it gives me a lot of optimism. So some heroes have emerged from all this. Like they, people have emerged from this who are inspiring. Speaking of inspiring people, has your, um, has your fellow California house member, Katie Porter, has she ever let you touch her whiteboard or use her whiteboard? No, no, no. She doesn't let let anyone get near that whiteboard. Don't you It's locked away in a vault. (laughs) With one of those like big old fashioned keys. And it's like a whole process or like two people have to turn the key at the same there's, time. There's going to be a whole new Oceans 22 movie about how they get into that. <laughs> Fantastic. So at the time of this recording, the bipartisan negotiations for a major police reform bill have fallen apart. What does it say about our nation's politics that like the largest protest movement in our nation's history hasn't motivated Congress to act? Uh, well, it's it's a real condemnation uh, of the Congress, and there are so many areas like this where the public sentiment is overwhelmingly in favor of reform, uh, and yet we can't get the Congress to do it. Right. Um, the same is true of gun violence, uh, which is plaguing the country and has for so long, and um, and vast majorities of the American people want something done yes. um, about police uh, violence, uh, excessive force. Um, about systemic racism, about gun violence, uh, and yet um, there's a uh, entrenched group within the Congress that can prevent all these things. And it does underscore one other thing um, about our present circumstance, which is because of of the filibuster, because of the gerrymander in the House, uh, where Republicans uh, in certain states can uh, ensure that a minority of people in those states control a vast majority of the seats. We have minority rule right. in significant parts of our government, and that just can't persist. Right. Uh, it's, it's part of the reason why we need to get rid of the filibuster. We need to get rid of the gerrymander. I think we need to add more states like the District of Columbia so that mm-hmm. the Senate is more representative of the country. Why we need to essentially do away with the Electoral College uh, by having the state center compact that whoever wins the popular vote becomes the president. Right. Uh, we can't continue so often to have presidents run the country who don't enjoy the support of a majority of the American people. Right. Let's talk about California for a sec. Is it time for California to get rid of its like bizarre recall system? Yes. Because I mean, you know, Gavin Newsom survived, but at the co- what cost? Like just hundreds of millions of dollars of just wasted money. You know, I think probably better than getting rid of it is to change it substantially. Um, you know, one change I think is uh, is so uh, patently necessary, and that is you shouldn't have the uh, vote to repeal a governor, vote to recall a governor on the same ballot with the election about who gets to replace them. Right. Because then you have this strange situation where people who vote no on the first part don't want to vote yes on the second part, and then somebody with 12% of the vote on the second part can become the governor. Um, and that's crazy. So, um, if we're going to keep it, number one, we should raise the threshold. So it's not so easy to qualify. So, so, you know, disgruntled interest can't pay a few million dollars and get a uh, recall on the ballot, but, but then also separate the elections. You want to recall the governor, you have a vote for doing that, but then you have a new election so that you can't gain the system and those kind of serious reforms are necessary. Right. Right. You, you grew up in a family with a pretty clear political divide. 
your father's family is starch Democrats, your mother's staunch Republicans. Okay. Thanksgiving is coming up. (laughs) (laughs) The question on everybody's mind is now that we're all gathering again, do you have any advice for kids going home to parents? They might uh, disagree with it. Like how do we, how do we handle our crazy uncles? What are we supposed to do? Oh, that is really hard. It's harder than ever. That is really hard. Um, In a way, America is one big Thanksgiving table, like every day of the year. And we're all fighting. <laughs> I'm, I'm just grateful. On the actual day? I'm grateful not to be at the Gosar, Paul Gosar's Thanksgiving table. Um, if you remember oh that God. political ad, uh, oh where all of his God. siblings, uh, before they identified themselves as his siblings, talked incredible. about why he was such a terrible representative. Uh, so I'm glad my Thanksgiving is not like that. Um, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I do remember um, after the 2016 election, getting together with some family and and uh, my wife asking before. I could stop her, you know, who did you vote for? And I'm like, please don't ask the question. I don't want to know. Right. And, uh, and I didn't want to know. Um, it's really hard. It's really hard. Um, uh, part of the, part of the challenge is we now get our information from such different places, right? Social media algorithms know what we like and dislike and share and don't share. And so we live in these bubbles. Uh, you know, I'll have people come up to me one right after the other. I get off the train, for example, in New York. Mm-hmm. First person comes up to me, are you Adam Schiff? I just want to shake your hand. You're my hero. Right. A millisecond later, the next New Yorker, having heard the first, comes up and he says, and you're, well, you're not my hero. Um, you lie all the time. Why do you lie all the time? And I think to myself, okay, I know what this guy's watching. I know what that guy's watching. It's not the same thing because right. I'm the same person. I can't be both. Right. And, you know, it's like that around the Thanksgiving table. You know, happily not my Thanksgiving table. Uh, oh. but in, in so many parts of the country, you have family members that can't talk to each other, yeah. uh, lifelong friends that won't see each other anymore. Um, I do think that again, when this period passes, um, we will return to some normalcy in our families and in our relationships with our neighbors, but it is that poison I was talking about that, that Trump injects into the body politic that really alienates uh, us from our family and friends. Um, it's no, it's no small truth that whoever has that bully pulpit, the most powerful in the world really sets the tone. Right. Um, that is really all too, all too true. And he set the tone for hatred and division and it really has torn people apart. He set the tone for division and for hatred, but it has been, it has proven very hard to reset the tone, really, when you add in the variable of, of, of COVID vaccines and anti-vaxxers, that's like another, that's another level. That's another level of disagreement. You know, can I ask you, can I ask you a question? Yes. You're very outspoken. And, you know, I, I have to think that before you, you became as outspoken as you are, um, uh, some of your professional colleagues or others may have said, you know, Samantha, don't do this. Um, mm-hmm. Why, why risk alienating any of your fans? Right. But you made the decision to speak out and you have, and you've been just magnificent. Um, oh. But what made you Ooh. make that decision? Cause there are a lot of other people in the Congress and the country who are similarly debating. Do I say anything? Do I speak out? What, what made you decide? I actually think that I, well, at first it was, at first it was because my interest was in, in the realm of political comedy, you know, and, and then, but it became so, 
actually after Trump won in 2016, it, it, the, it changed for me in the sense that I thought, all right, well, I would like to just be a beacon of sanity. I would like to just plant a flag on the right side of history, I guess. For as long as I can do it, I just want to be on the right side of history and just like put a stake in the ground and say like, this is right. This is wrong. <laughs> I just wanted in a way to do it for my kids to be like, this is righteous. <laughs> That's so dorky. No, it's so <laughs> wonderful. It's so wonderful. And I really don't understand how, how people don't think in those terms. I was really moved listening to Mitt Romney declare his verdict in the first trial right. when he talked about having you know to answer to his kids and his grandkids and right. another uh, uh, another colleague uh, Jeff Flake when he made his retirement speech made the same point that he has kids and grandkids to answer to and and I've wondered through these last four or five years what do so many of my other colleagues think about what they're going to say when the grandkids come to them one day and say you know grandma grandpa Please, what did tell me what you did during that awful time when an awful man was running the country? Yeah. Please tell me you didn't go along with that. Please tell me you did something. Yeah. What are they going to say? I know. What do you want your legacy to be? Like that's how you want to be remembered. Yeah. That's what you want. That's how you want the obit to read that you were part of something terrible and like part of something disgusting and vile. Yeah. I mean, look, um, look, look at oh, the, oh. <laughs> what, what perfect illustration of that is Liz Cheney would not go along with the big lies. She had the courage to stand up for her convictions and for our democracy. Elise Stefanik did not. Right. Um, Elise Stefanik said, hey, you need someone to tell the big lie. Um, I'm, I'm your it. person. I'll do it. I'll do um, it. And she advanced within the Republican Party. Um, how do you explain that uh, to, right. to, to others down the road? I, I don't understand how you do that. Additionally, how do you explain that Matt Gates is still in Congress? I can't. <laughs> I cannot I, I, I explain can't, it. I can't explain how he got there to begin with. Oh, get on my spring-loaded eject chair and let me push <laughs> the button. Can all uh, we can you can auction off who gets to push the button that ejects him from Congress? I'll be there. In one of the scenes I write about in the bunker, and one of the things I wanted to do in the book was sort of bring people into that that room, three floors full of the Capitol, where the intelligence committee meets. It, it's like a uh, meat locker in there. It's freezing. Um, but uh, um, Matt Gates was uh, one of the original storm the bunker people right. uh, who came crashing into the bunker to try to disrupt the proceedings. But yeah, I didn't. He was such an inconsequential member of Congress, such a non-entity. I didn't even know who he was. I thought his name was Gaines. So I kept calling him <laughs> Mr. Gaines. Uh, you know, what do you hope to get from this Mr. Gaines? You know, and uh, and my staff, one of my staff had to tell me his name is Gates. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. All right. This is my last question. And it's perhaps the most important question of our entire, this has been, first of all, this has been fascinating. So I want to thank you. And I apologize for my somber tones, but I'm like very interested in this. And this has been really great. Okay. So I have heard that you have a screenwriting hobby on the side. Are you planning to follow your nemesis, Donald Trump, into show business once you finish with your political career? Is this it? Uh, I you Look, I'm from Los Angeles. I'm a lawyer. Of course I write screenplays. That's what everyone of in LA does who's a lawyer. But, uh, you know, I have to chuckle because at one point, Donald Trump, who has obviously tried all these nicknames for me and these different lines mm -hmm. of attack, I think at one point he referred to me as a failed screenwriter. And... Uh, <laughs> 
Oh, little, really? little, little did he know what a compliment that is in my district. I represent Hollywood. Everyone's a failed screenwriter. Um, right. And uh, and so uh, I want to say thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think your screenwriting is a great success, sir. And um, I wish you well on your book tour. I mean, that's like a big extra job. That's a big extra job promoting this book out there. Well, you know, it it's the same really... Um, message and themes about democracy yeah. um, that I, I, I feel are central to my job right now. So I'm glad, yes. I'm glad it gives me a platform to do that. That's great. And thank you so much and for being such a good friend to the podcast now, in addition to the show. Well, I'm, I'm such a, a huge fan of yours and Likewise. what a delight to be with you. And, and now I'm going to go brag to my kids that I was on your show. Oh my God. And uh, they're going to be really, well, Okay, they're still not going to think I'm cool, but I'm going to try. <laughs> they, they're, they're, they're not supposed to find you cool. My kids don't. They, it's, it's, it's actually it defies nature. Wait, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. Don't tell me that your kids don't think you're cool. I, I just, I don't believe that. No, no, no. They think I'm such a loser. It's, it's important that your kids don't find you cool. It's actually, it's nature's way. If they think you're cool, that's very bad for their own development. That's what I'm telling myself. Okay. And that's why they criticize me every time I walk out the door. They're like, the, in those pants? And I accept. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> glad accept. to hear that. I, I feel much better. <laughs> I, this has been like therapy. Thank you. Yeah. You feel good about going outside looking like that. Okay. That's your choice. <laughs> All right. Thank you again. Okay, I need to squeeze in another quick break here. Oh my God, that was great. He's wonderful to talk to. Not a toilet clog. No! The opposite. <laughs> Definitively not a toilet clog. He's Drano. Oh, yeah. Yes, but like natural, <laughs> natural Drano. That, that's, that's actually a great transition to this game because, well, it's about nicknames and that could be okay. a new one for Representative Schiff because, as you know, <laughs> Adam Schiff was a favorite target of Donald Trump and his signature yes. nicknames at different points. He called him Adam Shit, <laughs> Little Adam Schiff, oh, Shifty Shift, and Pencil Neck. Uh, there's no competing with the master, but we wondered if, and we'll help you with this, of course, but Pencil if you were tasked... Neck. Yeah, Pencil that's neck. an old school one. That is so <laughs> um, old school, yeah. Yeah, but we're wondering if you were to come up with childish nicknames for the following people, what would you go okay. with? Okay, I'm so bad at this. Okay, go ahead. No worries, that we, can okay. all, we can all workshop these. So if you were to come up with a childish yep. nickname, let's say for Tucker Carlson, what okay. would you go with? Tucker Carlson. Oh, well, you know what's funny about... I'll change the subject because I don't want to think of a good name. <laughs> good pivot. Uh, it's a good pivot. I should actually go into politics. I'm actually quite good at that. Um, oh that's a great question, Adam. And let me answer it. But first, <laughs> let me mention, um, we actually built a Chrome extension. Remember when we built a Chrome extension for the yes. show? Yeah. I still have it on my computer and it automatically, <laughs> I, I have it. On, yeah. It was so good. And no wonder your computer never works. <laughs> well, yeah, really. It's like this age old Chrome extension, but I still have it on all of my computers and it changes Tucker Carlson's name to Tucker Carlson, like racist frozen food air. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. It's really, really good every yeah. every time it comes up. So I like that. I'll I'll, I'll stick with that one. 
Okay. All right. Does the Chrome extension do anything for Marjorie Taylor Greene? No. When we built it, she wasn't a player. Marjorie Taylor Greene. No, she was just at her CrossFit. Oh, God. What do you call her? <laughs> Where she belongs. I'm so bad at, like, like Republicans and <laughs> Democrats. Um, and then, like, the laser lady. The Green Goblin. Like, what do you call her? I don't know. I don't know. What are people? There, I'm sure these, there are, These are like, all great. These are, there's, like, ten names for her. I'm sure that people call her. I'm very bad at those. Yeah. I mean, she's so not, she's so impervious to any potential criticism from anybody. I know. That's the thing. I mean, she anything you would say about her, she would just wear it as a badge of honor. 100%. And spin it. So. 100%. It's not worth, it's not worth the brain cells. Not worth the brain. Well, maybe if not, not so much a nickname, but if if just when I mentioned the name Joe Manchin, what is like what comes to mind, like a word association? God, speaking of toilet clocks, (laughs) (laughs) no. Oh, come on! Not like a complete. What's another word for clog? Because we've said it too many times. Uh, A blockage. I think of a obstruction. I think of a terrible. He's a human obstruction. <laughs> oh my god, he's such a ugh, such a squeaky wheel, such a like <laughs> just grinding things to a halt wherever you go. All right, what about Ron DeSantis? Ron DeCantis. No, oh, there you <laughs> go. No, <I> don't. <laughs> That's a home run. Pencil right neck. I feel like someone that we wanted that we talked to on the show called him Ron Death sentence but i don't oh, remember what it was oh so, my god there you go that's a good that's one what's the, what's the opposite of a pencil neck because a pencil neck is like an intellectual like a geek like a brown nose <laughs> <eraser. laughs> crayon neck like th- thick crayon okay all right <laughs> okay uh, okay, last one because uh, I know this game has been so I'm fun. Put you out of your misery, yeah. <laughs> uh, Rudy Giuliani. Oh, hmm, 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 hmm. I mean, Rudy. you got Giuliani sitting right oh, there. Oh, Giuliani, that's great. That's perfect. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you for that. <laughs> I just felt like a layup with that I one. Really... We're just feeding you answers now. No, no, no. I appreciate it. I think that's great. These are all very good. <laughs> now that we've put them out, I'm sure people are just going to jump right on board. Right. Well, we got to resell the Chrome extension with new and improved names. I'm starting to think that Joe Manchin is never going to come on this podcast. And I don't know how I feel about that. We'll see. We'll see if we can all live with that. Okay, folks, I hope you liked my podcast. If you did, let me know in the comments. And if you didn't, just please consider hate listening in the future. Seriously, though, please rate, review, and follow Full Release and Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Come on, spread the word about this podcast. In the meantime, keep sending us your comments and questions to fullrelease at samby.com. They might even be featured in one of our special bonus episodes exclusively available on Stitcher Premium. Don't forget, don't ever forget to tune into Full Frontal with Samantha B. Wednesdays at 10.30 p.m. on TBS. And we'll see you next Tuesday for another full release. This podcast is brought to you by Airwolf and TBS and was produced by Adam Howard and Svea Baron-Reinstein with IT and technical production provided by Hightech. It was edited by Julia Fott and hosted by me, Samantha B. Seriously, though. Seriously, though. <laughs> Seriously, please rate. Seriously, though. Seriously, though. Seriously, though. Okay. Those are just for her personal stash. That's you actually just for a stash. <laughs>